All right, by way of announcement, we will be begin having our men's prayer breakfast a week from Saturday. That will be the 19th of September at 7.30. We, I just got confirmation that Lacey Hull, who is running for a state representative from this district, is going to come and speak, and I'm trying to get one other, so we'll have two speakers. If I get two speakers then we'll probably open it up to everybody, and instead of cooking breakfast, we'll have everybody BYOB, bring your own breakfast. And then, and then that, will, that will work uh, pretty well because I'm going to invite people from a couple of the other churches around to um, come out and talk because that would be good also from, from the Korean church, Pastor Young, because a, a lot of people in his community, live in this um, uh, district. So uh, that's that's an important thing. This is That's an important race. And while I was standing here getting set up, my phone rang. So I had to answer it. And it was somebody from <clears throat> a party that I will not mention who wanted me to vote for their candidate. So I was polite and said, no, bye. Very quick. If I had had more time, I might have played with them a little bit, but I didn't. All right, so we'll have men's prayer breakfast starting up a week from Saturday, and then we'll, we're getting more and more close to being what used to be normal. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, that we are walking by the Spirit, and that we are prepared to study the word and to internalize it. And just a reminder of prayer, we should be praying for folks that we know that are in Northern California and Oregon and Washington and a few other places out west that are burning to the ground. Uh, Wayne House and his wife had to evacuate from their house a couple of days ago, and their house is pretty close to the fire line. They were going to try to get back there today to rescue his library, which is a high priority for someone, so we should be praying for that, as well as for John Page, who's the pastor of, what's the name of that church, Bryce? Trinity, Trinity Bible Church in Medford. Uh, Bryce's sisters go there. He, he's part of our Friday morning group, so we need to pray for, for all of these folks. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together, come before your throne of grace in prayer because the Lord Jesus Christ has opened the way for us and we have access and we can come boldly before your throne of grace. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us and provided for us as a congregation. We continue to pray for um, these folks who are living in uh, danger areas in California and Oregon, Washington, probably several other states there. You know who they are. We have people in this congregation who have family members who are living not too far from those areas. I'm th thinking also of Shasta Bible College, one of the few solid schools left, and there's a couple of men on their faculty who've been to pre-trib that are 
well-known George Gunn and others, and we pray for their families and for the school and for their property. We pray for Trinity Bible Church and in Medford and for their property, for the church itself, uh, to protect that, and for uh, John and Carol Page also in terms of her health. We pray for all of those in that congregation that live in that area that you would watch over them. They may be a uh, faithful witness and be able to minister to those who uh, may suffer a great deal of loss during this particular time. And we also pray for Wayne and Arena House and protection of Wayne's house and uh, all that he has there and all of his books and everything and protect their lives and keep them safe. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word tonight, continue our focus on how we should think about voting and how to vote and how Christians should impact their nation as a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We will get there eventually. But we're continuing in our study, and tonight we're going to look at what I'm calling Divine Institution 6. And so we have to understand why I'm thinking that Israel is a divine institution uh, and why the church is not a divine institution. And there are some that have taught through divine institutions, and they, uh, they include the church and what the differences are. And this is not a new topic, as I've mentioned in the past coming. Really, you can trace an, a lot of these principles back into the early church. They weren't necessarily systematized. Later, as theology developed, they would be taught in terms of spheres of authority. And if you're talking about them in terms of a sphere of authority, then, of course, the church comes into play there because you define that a little bit differently. So it all depends depends on how you're approaching these things and how you're making your definitions because, of course, the Bible doesn't use the word divine institution. It just explains what God instituted and what he established. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's no surprise to any of us if we're paying attention to the news that the underlying ideology that is motivating much of the policies that are characteristic of leftists as opposed to classic liberals, that are characterizing leftist policy, that are characterizing the ideology of uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, many other smaller, less well-known organizations of anarchists, that they're grounded on Marxism. And Karl Marx specifically said that you have to destroy the foundations to rebuild a civilization. That's the goal of Marxism. That's one of the goals of Marxism. And so we're seeing this play out before our very eyes right now. And the scripture, of course, talks about the fact that these foundations are important, that with them you can have a secure, stable a prosperous civilization. Without them, you can't get anywhere. There's, there, everything is becomes chaotic uh, and prone to violence and war and just absolute collapse of the economy and everything else. So the divine institutions make up that foundation. And so I've broken them down into the three categories. The first three individual responsibility, which includes the responsibility to work, that we're responsible for our lives. We, are, we make lots of decisions in life. We're accountable to God for those decisions, and we are to be responsible for our lives, and it's not the government. It's not some higher level. It starts here, and individual responsibility is necessary for marriage to work. If people are not responsible then their marriage will not work. If they cannot take responsibility for, the li for their lives, for their uh, marriage, for all the decisions they make, then, then it's not going to work. You're just going to have two irresponsible people living together, and that's not going to last very long. And then same thing with family. You have to have a personal responsibility and a good marriage, or the family is not going to function as it should. And these three were all designed before the fall, all designed before there was sin, all designed when everything was perfect. So this is God's plan for uh, the human race to be able to fulfill his 
uh, creation covenant to uh, multiply and fill the earth, and that means to to completely uh, spread out over the earth and to learn all about it and to bring the creation under human uh, control. Of course, that fell apart with the fall, that fell apart with sin, and ever since then, people have a terrible time dealing with sin. And they have a hard time understanding that there is sin because in arrogance we all think we're pretty good. And God does not have that judgment. He says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. That's everybody. That's every cute little baby and all of your cute little children and grandchildren and uh, everyone else. They have a deceptive, deceitful, uh, corrupt heart. And so that has to be controlled. There was no control we saw in the first uh, dispensation after the fall. No, no, none whatsoever. And God's demonstrating something. He's demonstrating that without external controls, that it just leads to chaos and anarchy. And that is what happened in the collapse of that civilization into demonism uh, is one of the primary reasons for the judgment of the flood. And afterwards, the first thing God does is to institute government because there has to be a higher authority than the family or the clan or the patriarchy to govern people so that they can restrain sin and punish criminality. That's the fourth divine institution. And then the development in Genesis 10 and 11 of the independent nation states Uh, That is the result of the incident at the Tower of Babel. And so there's the, these two dispen, these two uh, divine institutions are designed to control and to repress uh, criminality and the sin nature. So the first three are designed to promote uh, productivity, advance civilization the next two to restrain it, and then the sixth one, Israel, is the way God is going to resolve the sin problem and provide blessing for all mankind. And so uh, last time, as we looked at this whole idea of nations, I made a statement that wasn't quite correct as I was nearing the end. Sometimes I get in a hurry. And uh, I made the statement that no nations are organized around a specific ethnic principle. And that's not uh, precisely true. The Japanese certainly are. Uh, The Koreans may be. I'm not much of a specialist on uh, Asian uh, countries. um, Thailand is, and this goes back many, many uh, centuries where they have this very closed uh, ethnic uh, community. But I'm primarily thinking in this study of those areas that are influenced by Christianity and especially Western civilization and, uh, and Africa. But I also know you have some, uh, when it gets to Africa, you have such a, a mixture of nations. I mean, so many of these borders that uh, are characteristic in the Middle East, you have Gertrude Bell after World War I who... Uh, artificially creates these, draws these borders on a map for Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Israel. And this is just a major, um, major problem because she doesn't take into account the tribal lands and the fact that many of the people there uh, are nomadic and they move around. The same thing is ha- has happened in, in Africa and today. In a post-colonial Africa, you have problems with the rise of, of the religious element of nationhood that is, that is brought in. And you have places like Nigeria and other places where there's this fight between a, a generally Christian background culture, or it could be animistic and pagan, versus a Islamic. And there's an incredible amount of bloodshed. And the number of Christians that are being uh, murdered and tortured horribly in uh, many places in Africa is just unbelievable. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, are being martyred for their faith because they are they are Christians. And this just goes on and on. It's just absolutely horrible. 
And yet God in his omniscience knew about all the horrors of war that would come in human history, but he knew that he would eventually resolve everything and he provided solutions in terms of his word. So we have to recognize that that there's a development on this whole idea of nations that I talked about and that uh, there's no uh, nation in Western Europe that ever or in Eastern Europe, that based their uh, their national identity on on an ethnicity, on being Caucasian or on being in any one tribe. And at the end, last time I talked about how all of these different uh, nations that we think about uh, developed over a span of time, that if you went back a thousand years, you would hardly recognize uh, most of the places in Europe, the countries we think of, uh, as a nation, they were still basically uh, nation states, I mean city states. You had Florence and Milan and Siena and Rome and Naples and other places in Italy. And today, uh, those ancient differences based on a number of factors still are uh, an undercurrent in the national politics. It's only been 150 years or so since Italy was united, Germany was united, Greece was united. And so those those ancient divisions uh, still show up. And it goes back to just understanding these the, the foundations of nations. We looked at Nimrod in uh, Genesis chapter 10, that he is pictured there as an antagonist to God. He establishes the first empire. He is uh, countering what God told man to do in the, um, uh, in, in the, what God told man to do in the Noahic covenant to uh, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Nimrod starts to build this empire. Uh, there are these various city-states, and then they are united, and they come together at Babel to build a tower, a ziggurat, uh, to reach heaven. And it's all ba- founded on religion. And every government on earth has religious presuppositions. Even the United States had strong religious presuppositions. And that yet they recognized the principle of freedom for each person under the first divine institution based on conscience to serve God as they saw fit. And the end result is that there's no government that any human being can create that is going to develop perfection and absolute stability and not have problems and not have people who are fallen creatures uh, take a political office and, and cause a lot of problems. And what eventually is happening, what we are seeing, is that the principle of freedom can be abused terribly, and then people use it irresponsibly because they have gotten away from the ethics and the morality and the foundation of Scripture. And so now they, they are turning the freedom that is there in the Constitution into anarchy. And freedom is never freedom to do whatever you want. It's always identified in Scripture as the freedom to serve God and to follow him. And we looked at this whole issue with Nimrod, that prior to Nimrod, there's no principle of differentiation in in the human race. There's just the human race. That's the biblical position. There's only one race. There's no such thing biblically as racism. There is just bigotry and prejudice toward other people uh, based on a number of different things. But every single human being uh, can trace their line back to Noah. And beyond that, it all goes back eventually to Adam. And so there's no distinction. None is better than another. And we are all created in the image and likeness of God so that every black life is important, every Caucasian life is important, every Hispanic life, every Chinese, Asian, whatever you want to call them, uh, whatever it is. Every human being has value and significance and to make judgments based upon uh, skin color or even culture is a violation of the kind of love that the Bible talks about. And so we have this uh, 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 this unif- unified whole coming off of the ark, 
and about three or four hundred years is going to go by. Uh, it's not absolute. I'll get into some details in a minute. But you have this period between the ark and Babel, depending on how, when you date the ark and the flood and when you date Babel. But it's probably around 200 to 400 years. So there's a sizable population that has developed uh, in that particular time. And they're unified. And under Nimrod, they're all coming together at, at, at um, Babel to build this to build this tower. And, of course, this is ultimately energized by Satan because Nimrod is doing what he's doing in antagonism and hostility to God, a rejection of God's plan and purpose, and that is always part of uh, Satan's plan to unify the human race against God. And we see this through history, that Satan is trying to establish his own kingdom contrary to God so that he can bring in peace and prosperity apart from God. His contention in the angelic conflict is that man can find peace, prosperity, happiness, and meaning apart from God, and he doesn't need God. And uh, that's exactly the basis for the temptation of Eve in the garden. And so uh, as he is pushing his agenda through Nimrod, and we've gone through the uh, background on Nimrod and development of his name to Marduk and and that, that we see the development of, and the beginning of this conflict that goes all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You have this battle between Babylon that represents the kingdom of man, human autonomy, independence from God, versus Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is where God placed his name, where God uh, indwelt in in the tabernacle and the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, that's important as background for understanding why Israel is important for other nations in terms of uh, our politics and our relationship to Israel. So we'll, uh, we'll discuss that. But we go through the Bible. We see in the Old Testament the conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon and that this uh, goes through, we know, the time of uh, David, excuse me, Daniel. And uh, Daniel is, uh, and his uh, friends are all captured by the Babylonians in the, what's called the Neo-Chaldean uh, Empire, and they're taken, or sometimes the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and they're taken back to uh, back to Babylon. But the, this conflict between the city of God and the city of man does not end until the end of the tribulation period. And it's interesting that in the tribulation period, in the period described between Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter nineteen that you see God giving Satan permission to do his best, and he is going to all but destroy humanity in trying to thwart God's plans. And he will, at that time, finally be allowed to elevate his man to uh, rule over the nations and the Antichrist. And that's when we're going to see globalism finally come together. So all of these things that we see along the way, all the attempts at empire building to provide peace and prosperity apart from God are just reflections of what will come in the end times. And so all of this this uh, internationalism is, is part of satanic strategy to uh, rule the planet. And that is one reason that internationalism and globalism is completely false. It's the attempt to do... Uh, for man to do what only God can do. And so we see it played out in in uh, the book of Revelation. The first beast is the Antichrist. He's described in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And his kingdom is identified as the kingdom of Babylon in Revelation eleven eight. So you see this theme that runs all the way through the scripture. And this war began with Lucifer's fall in Isaiah 14:12 through 14, and that there he is depicted as the ruler of Babylon, because he is the power behind the throne of Babylon. And so constantly you see this this theme of hostility, and it's not going to be until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and destroys 
uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet defeats their armies in the battle uh, of Armageddon. So the division of languages in Genesis 11 is a specific and inherent part of the angelic conflict. And God's preventing Satan from ruining the human race through internationalism. And we have to recognize that internationalism is the attempt to establish a one-world order, a global government, uh, new world order, all in the guise of providing peace and prosperity and unifying the human race and achieving a utopia apart from God. And so you have all of these different isms like Marxism and socialism and uh, the international communist conspiracy. All of these are designed to bring in a utopia, and it will absolutely never happen. There's nothing even the least bit utopic about uh, Marxism. Every nation that has given itself over to Marxism has ended up killing hundreds of thousands, millions, and hundreds of millions of people. In fact, Marxism is response, as an ideology is responsible for the death of more people than any other pagan ideology. Uh, Hitler was just a wannabe compared to Stalin, compared to Mao Zedong, com- compared to these, these other communist Marxist rulers. And so faced with this Nimrod, with this rebel king against God, God recognizes there's basically two options. He recognizes that all the earth had one language and one speech. This is the problem. And they've all come together in the plain in the land of Shinar, and they have said to one another, let's make a tower. Let's make this. And here's our map. So you see... Shinar is in the uh, lower valley uh, near the Persian Gulf between the Tigris Euphrates and, I mean, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. This is, because we're leading into Abram, this is where Abram is from. He is from Ur of the Chaldees, and that is located on the Tigris, I believe. And so this is that area, and just, and Babylon is located right about where that circle. Uh, bisects the Euphrates River, and if you go due west, what are you going to hit? Jerusalem. And so this is the center of the battle. And they come together for the purpose of making a name for themselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And God had told them to scatter and fill the earth in Genesis 9-1. So when we get to the end of the story, he confuses their language. He has two options. I can let them all continue to speak the same language. And God in his omniscience knew exactly what that would produce. And despite all of the wars and all of the evil, the border wars, the clashes, the revolts, the... uh, major wars that happened in history up to the 20th century with uh, two global conflicts and the two world wars and the specter of nuclear war, uh, God knew that it would be even worse. Not only would it be worse if it was internationalism, but the end would be the same as it's going to be at the tribulation and the human race would destroy itself. And in order to Uh, forestall that and allow the human race to last as long as it could, God divided the languages and divided the people. That provided the time for God to work out his plan of salvation and to bring the promise to Eve to fruition in the the seed of the woman in uh, the birth of the Messiah and the death of Messiah on the cross and then bringing in the current church age. But eventually, the human race, as creative as they are under the influence of Satan, are going to band together, and they are going to learn how to communicate through computer languages and other things, uh, to communicate with one another and to once again unite against God. And we are seeing the foreshadowing of that uh, even today. So God is the one who institutes nations by dividing up the languages. So people scatter, they get with other people who can speak the same language that they speak, 
and then they will develop from families to uh, clans to tribes and then eventually to city-states or nation-states and eventually to what we think of as a nation today in terms of of modern nations. So God establishes God God establishes borders. You have to have borders because God gives certain land to certain people. So ownership of property is embedded within the very concept of nations. Ownership of property, ownership of of uh, land, ownership of of material things. That's why it's a sin stated both in the Ten Commandments as well as in the New Testament to steal because people have a right to what they have earned. And in the United States Constitution and in the thinking of the Founding Fathers, they all understood that no one had the right to redistribute wealth, that if somebody has worked for something, then they have a right to it and nobody else has a right to it, that that's just government theft. And that was the standard thinking in the United States until you get into the late, late 19th century and 20th century with the rise of these ideologies of Marxism and socialism and various other utopic strategies that actually were attempted here or there uh, in the early part of uh, the 19th century, in the 1830s and 1840s, there were a few experiments that failed uh, here or there. So God scatters them over the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 32.8 then says, referring back to this event, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. So God establishes the nations, and the word for inheritance is really possessions or property. So God establishes a property for the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples. God set the boundaries. Border is a divine institution. That's how you protect one nation from another nation. And so you have a line, and on one side of the line it belongs to one nation, other side of the line it belongs to another nation, and God does not authorize internationalism, and it's not in in God's ideal plan for one nation to conquer another nation. That's why he prohibited Israel from conquering or attacking uh, and expanding an empire. They couldn't capture, uh, take over Mo, uh, the area that God designated to Moab or to Ammon, Amnon or, or to others, or to Lebanon. They, they, were, they had their land with their borders, and other people had their land and their borders. Paul speaks of this in Acts 17.26, says that God has made from one blood, one people, one race, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So if you're a Bible believer, you really shouldn't talk about different races. There's only one race, and that's the human race. And God has uh, established their pre-appointed times, the rise and the fall of different nations, and the boundaries for those particular uh, nations. So as these uh, family groups and clans developed into tribes, uh, then later nation-states, what you have is uh, eventually developing over several thousand years before you get the kind of situation we have by the late 19th century. And so that's what you have. Uh, It's rather late development for Italy, Greece, Germany, uh, maybe a few other places. Eastern Europe was a real mess if you try to read anything on the history of Poland, I remember remember reading uh, a book by that name written by uh, James Mishner. Back, I read that back in the 80s. And you, know, you look at all the different maps of Poland, it's all over the place. Uh, every time the Russians head, uh, head west or the Germans head east or somebody comes up from the south and conquers these various areas in Poland, it's got one of the most fluid borders. And the same is true for Belarus. These borders all were different before World War II, and they were different before World War I. Uh, we have several graduates from Jim's school who live in uh, Lviv in western Ukraine, but in the period before 
World War II and during World War II, Lviv was in Poland. And so you have all these different changes that, that take place. So what is it that unifies a people? And what we have seen is that it starts with language, but then as these groups got together, it, they had a common religion, they had a common heritage that developed over the years, and so it wasn't something that was grounded in ethnicity, with a few exceptions that I've mentioned earlier. It was grounded in these groups coming to, coming. Uh, coming together as as nations, so it uh, in Western Europe, especially a lot of these nations I ran through it the last time were composed of different tribal groups that came in during the period around the time of Christ for some before that for others, the Gauls, otherwise known as the Celts, and they split into different groups. You had one group that settled in the area of France. And you had another group that went over to, to England and to Ireland and Scotland. You had the Vikings. You have so many different groups. So nobody from a European heritage is anything close to a purebred. Just doesn't exist. Everybody's been mongrelized. But, and even Israel is not all made up of pure descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As I pointed out last time, you have numerous groups that came in. But God gave them a land. When he calls Abram, he commits to giving him a piece of real estate. So having a land is very important. And its border is the uh, great river, the river Euphrates on one side, the river of Egypt on the, on the uh, west. And it's bordered by the Mediterranean and the southern desert. So this is part of the land God gave to Israel, and that's theirs by right of of ownership. So a couple of things. Here we have some descriptions of what's happening, uh, comparing what's happening today with what happened at the Tower of Babel. On the left, you have uh, artist rendition of the Tower of Babel. But on the right, notice it says Europe, many tongues, one voice. And this is a portrayal of building the uh, central language center in Brussels for the uh, for uh, the EU, and you have the circle of stars symbolizing the uh, the EU, and so they 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 are self consciously trying to replace and do what Babel was an ancient Babel was unable to do, and this is their building in Brussels, and it's built like it's an unfinished ziggurat. And it was the architect's plan. They are making a claim for themselves that they are going to do what the ancient Babylonians were going to do. It's no different from the UN. All of these organizations are just taking over uh, for God. And so one of our uh, uh, adept listeners some years ago took the picture of the ziggurat at Babylon and merged it with the modern building to show the connection. Now, having looked at the development of nations, some three or four hundred years goes by before you get the call of Abram. Now, I put the flood literally based on Masoretic text dates. It's somewhere around 2800, 2900 B.C. But in talking with Petrovich last year, if you go with the numbers that are in the Septuagint, then that would push the flood back to about 32, 3300 B.C., and that has impacts on when you think Babel was and also when, when Abraham was. But you get something like two or three hundred, maybe five hundred years between Babel and, uh, or between the flood and the Tower of Babel. And then maybe you get another three or four hundred years between the Tower of Babel and uh, Abram. So there's been an expansion of people spreading out over the planet. And God is now prepared to call out a new nation. That's the whole deal with calling out Israel, is he is going to replace this international community with one nation that he's going to work with. And so he, he has a man who is already a believer. That's what Genesis 15, 6 describes, is that sometime before Genesis 12, 1, Abram had believed 
uh, Yahweh and God accounted it to him as righteousness. So that's how a person is saved, by trusting in God's promise of salvation in the Old Testament. And God tells him to leave your country. So it recognizes that there is he has a, um, a loyalty and a foundation in a particular country that is different from any other country. And now he is going to break that loyalty to that country, and he's going to go to a new land. And God says in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. So God clearly authorizes nations, independent nations, and recognizes that there's, uh, that there's, there's movement. What's interesting is we, we talk about patriotism, and it goes back to a, a Latin word, patria, which has to do with one's homeland. Uh, we hear of countries who refer to their homeland as the motherland or the fatherland. And that's the idea, is that, that you have a communal bond with the place and the people where you were born. And you're, you fight for that. You have loyalty to that group. And so there's that identification because you have a communal bond there. You believe the same things. You want the same things. Uh, and there is a unity of, of ideas and culture. And Abram is going to leave that behind. We know from other passages that that his father, his grandfather, were involved with the worship of the moon god and the sun god in in uh, uh, that area or, or the Chaldees. And so this is a, a break with that country, a break with that religious background, a break with that kind of a thinking due to his loyalty to God. And God is going to make him a great nation. And then God says, I will bless you. He's, God is going to prosper not just Abram, but all of his descendants. There's going to be a, a special benefits given to them uh, from God. And second, he says, I will make your name great. That's in contrast to the people at the Tower of Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you uh, great and your name great, and you shall be. Now, it's lost in terms. He's not making a declarative statement here that you'll be great. He, he is commanding him. This is in the imperative mood. You will be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. That Abram is to bless those around him. And this is related to the law that's uh, embedded within the Mosaic law later, that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself that you will be a blessing to those around you. And how many of us would want to talk to people who know us or we work with or we live around and say, is my life really a blessing to you? I don't know if anyone wants to go ask that question. And then we come to verse 3. And this is really the heart of why I make Israel a divine institution. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice God doesn't say all the nations. He says all of the families. He breaks it down to the core unit. Uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, let's look at how I've defined a divine institution. This is not unique to me. But it is an absolute social structure, such as personal responsibility, marriage, family, that's instituted by God. Man did not originate it. It doesn't come along because man says, we, well, let, let's figure out how we can make this thing work a little better. God establishes it for the entire human race, marriage. I remember before I went to seminary, you're sitting around with other guys who want to go in the ministry, and you ask these questions. Well... If if two unbelievers come to you and want you to perform their wedding, are you going to do it? And the answer is, of course, it's a divine institution. Marriage is for unbelievers as well as believers. Now, if you have a, a, an unbeliever and a believer coming, well, that's a different issue. Now you have to 
uh, talk to them about uh, the fact that the Bible clearly says that you should not be unequally yoked. And a lot of parents haven't made an issue out of that in their children's lives, and then they grow up and they are unequally yoked, and then they're miserable, and they get a divorce or three or four, uh, all kinds of problems. I've seen that a lot over the years uh, with friends as well as a pastor of a church. I was appalled the first church I went to how many of the children in that church were married to unbelievers. And now they didn't go to church anywhere or they were going to a Catholic church because they married somebody who's Roman Catholic or something else. Just a complete violation of the fact that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But the divine institutions are true for everyone, believer, unbeliever, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, Christian, Jew, they're true for everybody. And if the, the protocols for marriage, for personal responsibility, marriage and family are followed, which they are in a number of places where they understand these establishment principles, then those nations and those cultures can have stability and a measure of prosperity. Uh, when they die, they won't necessarily go to heaven unless they became a believer. But these are rules or principles that are true for every single uh, person. So when you look at Genesis 12.3, where God says, I will bless those who bless you, there's no caveat there saying, I will bless those who bless you if they're believers. It applies to them whether they are a believer or an unbeliever. I will curse or I will judge harshly those who treat you lightly or with disrespect and that isn't qualified either. So this is a principle that applies equally to believer and unbeliever. So that fits the idea of a divine institution, that it's a universal principle, a worldwide principle that applies to every human being, whether they are a believer or not. And so this is designed, we also say the divine institutions are designed for the perpetuation, preservation, protection, and prosperity of the human race. And that's true especially in terms of relationship to Israel. And so we've seen in uh, references in uh, previous, the previous lesson last week that it, it wasn't just limited to Abram and his descendants because when they uh, moved from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran, they were there for uh, a couple of decades or for a number of years. And the people that they, it, it says in the translation that they, uh, acquired, but it's just the he Hebrew word for to make. And so it, it seems logical that they were saved, that through the witness of Abram and Sarah, there were quite a few that became saved and migrate with him down to uh, the promised land. And so they go down there and they become the core of this army he raises later on and his servants. So he was quite wealthy uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world at his, his particular time with incredible, incredibly large herds and flocks. And he had all these people to manage everything and run everything. So he's a, you know, he, he's the uh, Fortune 100 company. He's probably at the top of it with all of these employees and everybody is loyal to him. And many of them were saved. And then in Genesis 12, 7, God says, to your descendants, I will give you this land. And uh, this is in Shechem, and there Abram built an altar to the Lord. Genesis fifteen eighteen to 21 identifies the, the boundaries. So this is a foundation for the land, those people who live in that land. Now, what I studied, pointed out last time is over the course of time, there were many Gentiles who assimilated into Israel. And you go through the Mosaic Law and you can find a num number of stipulations on how they were to treat uh, those who were uh, not Jews who were living in the land of Israel. They were always to deal with them in grace. But they didn't have the kind of context where some people from some other country were gradually invading their country, just coming across the border and trying to take over. And so they, they recognize the principle of boundaries, 
But for the most part, those who came and moved in with Israel assimilated. You have examples of the Midianites. Jethro was uh, Moses' uh, father-in-law. You have the example of of, uh, Rahab and her family who were Canaanites. You had the example of of others like Ruth who came and she was a Moabitess and she uh, marries a Jew and then eventually after he dies she comes with her uh, mother-in-law Naomi and they go back into Israel and she says your God will be my God and your people will be my people. That's the idea of assimilation so that they become part of the Jewish nation and in fact Rahab and Ruth are both listed in the line of Christ, as is Bathsheba. And many people believe that Bathsheba may have been uh, uh, a, a Hittite. I'm not convinced of that, but it's, it's certainly possible. Now, there are other passages in the Scripture that talk about the reasons that believers should support Israel. One of them is in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. So we have Genesis 12:3. And that takes place approximately 2000 B.C., give or take a couple hundred years. And then you have Zechariah 2.8, one of the last books in the Old Testament. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You remember Malachi, he's the Italian prophet, Malachi. Uh, You have those three are your post-exile, post-exilic prophets. And they write around 400 or so B.C., generally speaking, uh, Malachi being the last one. Uh, Zechariah writes uh, around 520, 510, somewhere in there when they're, because the issue with him is the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the second temple. So in Zechariah, we read, For thus says Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For, and here's the principle. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I can just see how some artist would portray this with God with two eyes that look like apples. Uh, it's a, obviously a figure of speech. It's not something literal. But what is the apple of a person's eye? Have you ever thought about that? What is the apple of a person's eye? This was a well-known idiom. It refers to the pupil. Now, what is the significance of the pupil? The pupil is where the eye looks at a particular object and where the light enters in from that object. So it's basically talking about the focus of a person's gaze, what they are looking at. And so he who touches you, touches Israel to harm Israel, touches the focal point of God's thinking. That's the idea there. They are at the center of God's plan for the human race because it's through the uh, Israelites that God is going to bring in uh, the Messiah. Now, Amos was written a little earlier. Amos lives about the same time as Isaiah and says, Uh, There, God says, you only, talking to the nation, only you have I known of all the families of the earth. And the word there indicates a more intimate relationship. God has a relationship with Israel that he doesn't have with any other nation, not even Christian America. God does not have only that's a distinction with Israel, is God has worked through many different nations throughout all of history. And there have been some great Christian nations in the church age. But no Christian nation, no nation based on the foundational principles of the Word of God, England was this way at one time, the United States at one time, but they're never a covenant nation. Only Israel is a covenant nation. Only Israel has that relationship with God that uh, will never be lost. And then we come to uh, Joel 3, 1 and 2. Why is it that Bible-believing Christians should support Israel? And this is an understanding of something that will happen in the future. In Joel chapter 3, 1 and 2, 
It begins, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. That's not talking about the return from the exile in Babylon. It's talking about the end of days, the end of the tribulation when God sends forth his angels to gather all of the Jews together and to bring them back to Israel to establish the kingdom uh, for the Messiah. And so this is what happens at the end of the tribulation period. All the Jews are brought back to uh, Judah and Jerusalem and then a second thing is stated in verse 2, I will also gather all nations. So he's going to gather all of the Israelites. These are the judgments that's mentioned here are what's given in Matthew chapter 25. You have the first two parables in Matthew 25 are talking about uh, judgments uh, on Israel at the end of the tribulation period. And then you come to the sheep and the goat judgment at the end of Matthew 25, which every idiot liberal socialist comes along and says this is all about socialism and the way to get to heaven is you have to go visit the poor and you have to visit those in jail and all of this. And where Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with that. He's talking about the persecution of Jews, the anti-Semitic persecution of Jews during the tribulation, because he says, if you've done this for these, my brethren, and if you look at the uh, text, my brethren always refers to his physical relationship to other Jews. If you do this, that is, if you have fed them, if you have clothed them, if you have visited them when they are in, in prison, then that is uh, given as an example. Uh, you wouldn't do that in the tribulation period when there's such a threat of persecution and, uh, and torture and death for being a, a friend to the Jews. You wouldn't do that unless you were a believer and had a frame of reference for understanding that the Jews are God's chosen people. And so what we, what we read here is uh, the same scenario. Uh, it is also talking about the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation period. I, also, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, a lot of debate over just exactly where that is located, but many people believe it is in the Kidron Valley there just to the... Uh, just to the east of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And then God says, And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. So the issue in that judgment of the Gentiles, of the nations, is how they treated Israel. On account of my people, my heritage, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have also divided up my land. And so I, you hear a lot of people today, some overzealous uh, Christian Zionists, uh, think that we ha that Israel has to get all their land back now. We can't. Nobody can compromise on the West Bank or Gaza. All of this is horrible. Israel has to have all their land because God gave it to them, and they have no real understanding of, of prophecy. And uh, but because Gentiles have been dividing up the land of Israel. Since the times of the Gentiles began with the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. And so the, the nations, people in the nations, it's never just a group that is, um, that is judged. The, the Hebrew is the Goy, the Gentiles, whom they have scattered among the Gentiles. They have also divided up my land. So God is going to judge people in the end times for how he, they have treated Israel. Then we have numerous passages in the Psalms that talk about God's love for Israel and God's love for Zion. Just one of these is Psalm 87.2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Now, he's not fond of the architecture. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, the gates of Zion stand for the location and the people who are within the location. And so we, we use this kind of figure of speech all the time. It's called a metonymy. And we talk about, well, the White House said, 
Well, we know that that's not talking about the literal White House speaking because we know that the White House is an inanimate building. The White House never said anything. But it is, you, you associate a place with the people who are in the place. And so it's the same thing here. The gates of Zion refers to the people who live in Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places. Notice how it shifted from a from the metonymy of the gates to now a place where people live. Uh, more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. And so I'm going to break here. It's a good place to stop. And next time we have to answer the question, so how does this impact and why does it impact and why should it impact uh, the decisions that we make when we're choosing leaders? And that will begin next time by answering the question, what is Zionism? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to see your uh, perfect plan working its way out through Israel and the importance of Israel and the Jewish people to your plan and your purposes. And, Father, we recognize that there are many uh, very deceptive and duplicitous uh, leaders in Congress and uh, who run for office who talk out of the one side of their mouth about how much they support the American-Israel alliance and they support Israel, and then they turn right around and they uh, support various treaties and uh, various uh, policies that are inherently anti-Israel. And so we have to have the discernment to recognize who is truly supportive of Israel and who is just giving it lip service. So, Father, we pray that we can come to understand what this means and how it works itself out in history, and we'll do that next time. In Christ's name, amen.